She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other congressional leaders are expected to meet with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the White House Chief of Staff on a resolution designed to prevent the debt limit from busting and reaching a broader budget deal. The two politically dicey issues may not ultimately be linked, but both are considered by top Democrats and Republicans to be high on the to-do list. If you want to fight this guy, you have to know how to take him on. He's a bully. I understand him. I've watched him for decades. You can confront a bully. Don't let him get away with what he's doing. I think it takes someone tough to take on Donald Trump. I'm ready to go toe-to-toe. Politics is a crazy world, but when you have the best employment numbers in history, when you have the best unemployment numbers in history, when you have the best economy probably that we've ever had, I don't know, how do you lose this election, right? And now, Stacey Washington. Ooh, I'm back, and it's so good to be with you. I have to say congratulations again. If you're just tuning into the show, welcome. Congratulations to the graduates of 2019. High schoolers, college students, graduate students, technical school students, tech college students, uh, people who are graduating with certificates of training, whatever you've been working on, if this is your graduation season, congratulations to you. Thank you for tuning into the show today and making your home at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And we have another fantastic show for you. This hour, we're going to be chatting with Matthew Bunsen from the National Catholic Register. He's coming on to discuss the Alabama pro-life bill. Now, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to like do a spoiler alert for tomorrow's show. But suffice it to say. Some weird announcements have been being made by so-called Republicans who don't support these pro-life legislation pieces. And the reasons that they're giving sound a lot like what the liberals say. Yeah, that's what's happening. So uh, we'll we'll dig into that. Um, We're going to talk about the debt problem. We're going to talk about a former abortion clinic owner describing how sex education in public schools actually creates a market for abortion. This is something that if if you're a parent of kids, you got to know this information because it enables you to be able to counter that message from your kid's school. But the fact is, and, and now we're, sp- you know, I'm in experience land here when I say this, I honestly, the difference between public school and Christian school it becomes more evident over time. I mean, it's obvious in the beginning when you go tour the Christian school, the difference, but over time, you see it in your children. Now, if you're one of those families, you're saying, you know what, Christian school is not for us because of the cost, or we don't have anything in our area that we feel is appropriate and what have you, you get the same impact by homeschooling. And if you're not able to do all of the homeschooling yourself, if it's not something you feel like you can take on as the primary, uh, you know, driver, then you should check out co-ops in your area. See if there are any co-ops. And a co-op is is a group of parents who've gotten together and they've said, we're going to hire some teachers. So they're basically setting up their own school. It's a homeschool environment. So the teachers will teach your child, they'll instruct them, they'll give them grades And there's a fee associated with it. Like usually you pay a fee to join the co-op and then you register for the classes. It's almost like a college situation where you register your child for maybe three or four classes from the co-op, the the tougher classes, maybe, you know, the math and the sciences or maybe math, science and history, whatever you want that they're offering, you register your child for that. Your child shows up there and gets taught. 
but it leaves out all the guff. There's no character education. Uh, there's no computer lab, unless that's a class your kid's taking, and it's never a computer lab. It's something specific that they're learning and getting a certificate in something from Microsoft Office or Access Databases or Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoint or, you know, some other, uh, you know, operating system, whatever. These co-ops serve as a way to give you the access to the, the teaching uh, staff, the teachers, the resources, and then you supplement that. Maybe you're in charge of the art um, and, you know, PE and music. And those are the, the instructional areas that you're in charge of. And you get yourself a, you know, a music teacher who's teaching your child maybe voice and maybe piano or flute or what have you. And those are easy to find too. So is it more legwork? Yes. But are your kids worth it? Yes. So we're going to dig into that. In fact, let's do it now. I already told you who the guest is for this hour in the program. Um, so this is an, a former abortion clinic owner. She pushes sex ed on kids. She said when she worked at the abortion clinic, they partnered with schools to use sex education to kind of put it in the kid's mind that your parents don't want you to know this and your parents don't want you to have sex, but sex is fun and it's easy and it's cool and you should do it. And if you get in trouble, you can always come to us, Planned Parenthood, and we'll help you creating future, you know, future clients for the abortion clinic. Now, this is reported by the Catholic Register. The lady's name is Carol Everett. And for six years, she operated four abortion clinics in Texas. She earned a commission for every abortion that was uh, executed. She also was entitled to a share of the fees that were charged by each clinic. She sold abortion and made big bucks off of the cash cow that it was. So she said, uh, and this is at the annual Rose Dinner for the National March for Life in Ottawa. She says a new abortion clinic would pay for itself by doing abortions. One month was all it took to, to completely pay off the cost of that clinic. And the clinic system to make all of this quick, easy money was simple and easy. The abortionist would move from one room to the next, performing abortion after abortion, often without even cleaning up between. In addition, the counselors at the clinics are more like telemarketers. They're trained to schedule abortions. They're not there to help you make a decision or to help you kind of flush out the issues. They're there to help you have an abortion, period, point blank, get it done. Okay, thank you. They're also there to eliminate the potential client's fears and objections concerning the procedure. Now, Everett left the abortion industry after a Christian business counselor that she hired led her to Christ. She also talked about how damaging government-funded sex education programs are. In her speech at the Rose Dinner, she took aim at the programs for stealing away the innate modesty of children and creating a rift between parents and their kids. And this is, again, you know why I'm so passionate about this? Because I see, you know, I see some of the families, they're just like, obviously they're people. They put their pants on one leg at a time. Their kids have problems and they have problems. But there's a, a love and a camaraderie and a respect from the children to the parents that is so obvious and so evident. And it comes from those kids knowing Jesus Christ. Because our natural inclination as people is to shake our fist at God and at any authority and say, not just I'm going to do it my way, but I'm going to do it my way and I don't want you telling me anything about it. That's who we are. That's how, 
That's our sick and depraved condition. We're sinners. But when children come to know the Lord and they memorize scripture and they have no place of escape, meaning they don't go to school and have the teacher tell them, well, you know, your parents are Christians, but you don't have to be. You know, that sows dissension and that deception seeps into kids. It takes away their, their natural curiosity. It replaces their, um, their soft, pliable, teachable natures with rebellion. And it puts the parents on the back. You're back on your heels. You're on defense. And if there's anything you don't want to be on defense on, it's parenting. We're talking about human beings created in the image of God who are given to you for a time so that you can raise them to know him and love him. And then they're really not yours anymore. And it's so hard to, like, to, to just, just to, to get to that because you're loving your children. You're raising them. You're doing all that you can for them. And the enemy is out. What's he out there for? To kill, steal, and destroy. And that is primarily for the kids. What, what do you think the enemy wants to do? He doesn't want you and your children to have a close personal relationship and for them to respect you and love you and see Christ's love for them modeled in you. They don't want, the devil doesn't want you and your kids to be united in prayer over issues at their school or in their friend group. He doesn't want your family united in prayer, interceding on behalf of your school, church, city, nation. No. So he's there and this sex education, it's like, it's on autopilot. So she was talking at this Rose dinner. um, And if you're just tuning in, I'm talking about Carol Everett. She was formerly a clinic director over four abortion clinics in Texas. And now she's a pro-life speaker. A counselor led her to know the Lord and brought her out of the the, uh, abortion industry. And so she's speaking at this Rose dinner and she says, you know, the programs, the sex ed programs aim to teach children that talking to their parents about sex is uncomfortable. And the people that they could talk about it more comfortably with are Planned Parenthood workers or, or their school counselor or someone at the school, not their parents. And the fact is, you know, if you have a good relationship with your kids and you've been talking to them about the proper names of the human body parts and really destigmatizing something that the world wants to stigmatize it. The world wants sex to be something dirty that can't be discussed. But if you treat it as something that is a function of a healthy marriage that God ordained for men and women to men and women to enjoy with each other within the confines of marriage and you use the proper names, the anatomical names for body parts and you engage your children on this issue, they not only will not be afraid to talk to you about it, you'll be shocked at the stuff they'll ask you. They will come to you because they know, well, I can ask my friends and they don't know anything. They don't know anything true about, you know, human sexuality compared to potatoes. They don't know anything about it because they keep using the the wrong names for the body parts. But I know if I ask my mom, she'll tell me. I know if I if I if I want to know something, I'll go ask my dad. I can bring it up after dinner at the table with my siblings sitting around. I, I can ask if your kids have that, then you're. Keep that information flowing within the confines of your home so that the enemy can't come in and fill them up with this sex ed nonsense. And, and so you must glean from what I'm saying, haters in the audience, God bless you, thanks for listening, that I am not trying to keep information from the kids, nor am I trying to stigmatize sex, nor am I afraid of it 
or children or Planned Parenthood or sex ed. I don't think strangers should be teaching your kids about sex. You should teach them about it. Biblical sexual relations in the confines of marriage taught by the parents to the kids as this is what the the Bible ordains for us. The world wants you to think X, here's the truth. That's the bond that you can have with your children that any subject can be discussed, whether it's drugs, alcohol, mistakes that people are making, depression, whatever. They can come and talk to you about it. And you know, the funny thing about kids is we take for granted that they have eyes and ears of their own and they can observe and that God has given them an innate sense of childlike wisdom. They see things often more as they truly are than we do. So she says the programs want to teach children not to talk to their parents because if they do, they'll be uncomfortable. They offer to be the people that the kids can talk to. Then they provide the girls with low dose birth control, which is ineffective. Because if you don't take low dose birth control at the same time every single day, it doesn't work. And then when the girls get pregnant because they've been told by their teacher at school that they're just animals and if they want to do something, they should satisfy themselves. Don't worry about marriage. That's some old fogey stuff your parents want you to believe. You don't have to be religious if your parents are religious. That's what they call it, religion. So then the kids are then pregnant. The girls are pregnant and they, they're scared. They know they've gone against what their parents have told them to do. So they go and they have an abortion. So once Everett admitted to herself that she was a baby killing and woman killing woman, she noticed the harm that she and her abortion clinics were doing in order to get a quick buck. And for the very first time in her life, she took notice of the girls sitting in her clinics. They'd be in the corner crying, crying. She said she saw her own abortion for what it was. For the first time in her life, she realized it was what drove her down the path of pain and denial that she had been on. And that's when she turned away from the industry and started a foundation to help women and girls facing crisis pregnancies and began speaking around the country. Everett credited the closing of 28 abortion clinics in Texas to God, and she believes this new legislation in Alabama will lead to more closings and more lives saved. That's powerful. When we get back, we'll have Matthew Bunsen. I'm Stacey Washington. Our Holy Land tour for March of 2020 is set. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Last year, we sold out in August, and I expect us to do that again this year. There is such a high demand, especially among Christians in America, to see Israel, the land of the Bible. So we're going again in March on our annual trek. So I wanted to go ahead and let you know if you want to sign up and register, get more information, whatever the case may be, if you want to go to our website, twholyland.com, twholyland.com, everything is there, twholyland.com. You can even print off a brochure from that website. It's going to be a wonderful time visiting Israel with brothers and sisters from across our country as we go to the Holy Land in March. So go ahead and get signed up now, twholyland.com. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. American credit card debt has now topped $1 trillion, and most of the people in debt don't pay off their credit cards and thus pay very high interest rates. But never fear. Socialists, Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have introduced legislation to provide some relief. Their bill would limit what credit card companies could charge in interest rates. Although the Bible and even various theologians have warned against usury, I don't think that is the origin of their concern for the Loan Shark Prevention Act. Instead, they merely think that government should be a solution to any social problems in society. Most Christians would instead suggest that providing biblical counseling on money would be a better solution. High interest rates are being charged by credit card companies, but also by payday lenders. In previous commentaries, I've talked about how some of these groups prey upon poor Americans who need to borrow money before their next paycheck. These interest rates being charged seem exorbitant until you realize that some of the people borrowing money have a poor track record in repaying the loan. By the way, these two socialists aren't through. They also want the U.S. Postal Service to provide basic banking services so that poor people don't have to pay banks a monthly service fee. This would be the same U.S. Postal Service that loses about $5 billion each year and lost a record $15 billion in 2012. Let's just say that the post office might not be the best model for sound financial management. And postal workers don't need to be given the responsibility of becoming bank tellers. These bills and proposals once again illustrate the mindset of some members of Congress who are convinced that the best solution to any social, political, or economic issue is more government. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Antisemitism, go to viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Viewpoints.info slash antisemitism. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Find out more at AFR.net, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, and StacyOnTheRight.com. All right, so uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Matthew Bunsen to the program. He's with the National Catholic Register. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us today. Oh, very good to be with you. So this Alabama bill has really caused a furor across the country. I know for those of us who are pro-life, we're excited about what we're seeing. And I, I'm, I'm fine with the backlash. I'm fine with the attention that's being paid. I actually hope that more people are finding out the truth about the abortion industry because of the bills like the ones passed in. Missouri ours a lot, is a lot weaker than the Alabama bill, but still the Alabama bill is kind of the, the tip of the spear here. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, what we have seen, uh, certainly in the last uh, two, three years, uh, is a movement on the part of the pro-abortion movement uh, to try to cement or codify, and certainly in the state level, uh, abortion laws. And that has had the interesting side effect of revealing very plainly what the true agenda is. The mask, in a way, has fallen off. Uh, that uh, the end game for them uh, is no longer even what it was in 1992 under Bill Clinton of abortion being safe, legal, and rare. It is now quite literally abortion on demand uh, at any time, even up to uh, what is tantamount to infanticide, as we saw in the New York bill and uh, as was being proposed in the Virginia law. So the radical aspect of the abortion movement is now plain for everyone to see. And I kind of thought it was radical six or seven years ago when they had uh, some of their pro-abortion protesters chanting Hail Satan in the Texas legislature. 
but it's it's i mean yeah <laughs> it's it, that's crazy but the, it's worse I, I, I hard to say but it seems worse now than ever well i, I agree i mean abortion itself is utterly radical uh, in what it does, in what it does to culture, in what it does to the unborn, in what it does to those who participate in it and procure it. But what we're seeing now uh, is all bets are off in terms of any willingness to compromise, any willingness to accept any sensible regulations or limitations. Uh, the movement now is going straight down the road uh, to what they see as the federal payment, the, the federal covering and health care of abortion, so taxpayer-funded abortion on every level. Uh, and it is, as we were just saying, that uh, abortion on demand up to and including birth. Those are their objectives, and it is helpful, I think, for clarifying where exactly we are today in the 21st century uh, with regard to the abortion movement. So what what happens next? Because I think a lot of people are like, okay, um, that's a fantastic bill. It's not due to take uh, effect for six more months. The Alabama bill. What happens? Well, I I think the ACLU. Somebody's already said they're going to sue about it. I'm sure. Is this (laughs) is part of the intent to send it to the Supreme Court, or you know? Yes, I think we're seeing a a twofold strategy. Uh, The the first is uh, we have some bills similar, like the the Alabama bill, uh, that is intended essentially to to be a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, to bring it to the Supreme Court as quickly as possible. We also have a host of other pieces of legislation uh, in legislatures all across the, the country. Uh, We're seeing the heartbeat bills. We're seeing the uh, dismemberment bills. We're seeing uh, the requirement for regulations of of abortion uh, centers, of of abortion clinics, uh, abortion mills. That's another route uh, of moving cases up to the court. So we're seeing, I think it's going to be a twofold track. At least this is what uh, attorneys who follow this sort of thing are are saying, certainly telling me, uh, that the Alabama bill is virtually guaranteed to be challenged immediately and will likely be uh, stricken by a federal court because of the ability to cherry-pick where you're going to make your appeal. The other cases are likely also to be uh, struck down by different courts, and then both sides are going to be working their way up uh, through the appellate system. So we're looking at some years, I think, of appeals and then movement to, to higher courts. So stricken down by a court is just code for liberal activist judge, you know, <laughs> says you, you, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but the, the real rubber meeting the road is if they're going to have like injunctions saying we're striking this law down and we're also enjoining you from going forward with it, like do, doing any part of it while it works its way up. And of course, they always give notice right when they get the negative ruling, well, we're appealing. So we're notifying you that we're going to appeal right there, then and there. So the judge knows, you know, and, and the other part that's really funny about that is, uh, Matthew, we're talking about people who are striking down laws that are enacted by legislatures, which means the people who enacted those laws could easily be recalled or replaced in the next election and the law could be reversed. But instead of doing that, they're saying, no, we're going to just use the legislative or the uh, the judicial branch to nullify the legislative. 
Right. Well, we've seen for a while the phenomenon of activist judges of an activist judiciary and the ability for different organizations, uh, as long as they have proper legal standing in the eyes of the court, uh, to file a suit and an injunction uh, by very carefully picking, cherry-picking uh, the court to which they're going to make their appeal uh, or to bring the suit. Uh, I think in particular of the Ninth Circuit Court, which is especially infamous for its left-leaning tendencies. Uh, there's been some controversy because Donald Trump uh, has, uh, the President Trump has uh, appointed, I think, several new members to the Ninth Circuit. It's not tipping the balance as yet, uh, but for the first time in a while, I think we're, we are hearing uh, what one could call conservative judicial voices in courts that had not had that type of a voice for a while. So those activist judges then pose, I think, the most immediate threat uh, to all of the abortion legislation that's been passed. And now the question is going to be, how far can they get in the appeal system? And I expect uh, that uh, these cases will find their way at some point to the court. Now, the question is going to be, will the court take the Alabama case, for example, on its own? Will it uh, aggregate it? Will it put it together with all of the other abortion cases that are likely to find their way up there, including the heartbeat bills and the dismemberment bills? Or are those going to be treated separately? And if they're treated separately, then we're looking at a series of rulings over uh, a period of time. And that, I think, will lay the groundwork for where, we're, where we are and where we're going to be uh, with abortion in America. So do you see, because I, I know uh, one, of my, one of our daughters was like, we are the most pro-life generation, Mom. And I was like, I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the you know, pro-abortion grandparents and <laughs> parents aren't going to still keep you know, basically beating that drum and s- slowing down the progress that's being made. Because these, these young people are the ones like Lila Rose and all the, these are youthful people who are driving these debates and the conversation and the legislation, the protests, the prayer movements, um, the marches. They're the ones who are driving this. And when they're older, I, I would love for them to be able to have the kind of results we've seen in other areas of American society where they're able to say, yeah, that was, that was the truth for us once. You know how we speak about slavery. It was once true for yes, us that people yeah. could own people, but no more. And we've come so far since then. Um, I would love for them to be able to say, yeah, we were the most pro-life generation when I was in my youth, but now we're a pro-life country. There was a striking comment uh, from some feminist leaders uh, at the March for Life. I, I don't know if you attend each year in Washington, D.C., and of course, now we have the March for Life on both coasts. We've got marches uh, all over the country. But the, the one in Washington, D.C., which tends to draw the largest crowds, uh, some feminist leaders were making the admission uh, that they were very disturbed because here they were on the metro in Washington, D.C., and I, I use the metro every day, and piling out of the cars to go to the march, holding signs and in such joy-filled uh, mood were literally hundreds of young people. Mm-hmm. And as they wandered through the city, they were stunned and dismayed to see how many young people were attending the March for Life. And they said that if you look at this, that the pro-life movement, it is a young movement. And they find that extremely alarming, as, as they should, because there is certainly a generational shift in some ways. Uh, millennials understand uh, and there's, in a way, a practical aspect to it, that 
given the fact that we have seen tens of millions of 60-some million abortions since Roe v. Wade, the path to birth in the United States, just as the path to birth in other places, especially in the West, uh, is a precarious one. So this, this generation, certainly anyone born after 1973, is aware uh, of the risks that they faced in utero in an, when they were unborn of just coming into the world. And I think that is the, one of those unspoken aspects of why the pro-life movement is gaining so much traction. Yeah, it, it is. But it, I love that story. That is one of my favorites now that I've heard about people getting triggered because <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of happy, probably good looking, you know, uh, you know, well put together, casually dressed, not uptight young people probably with Starbucks and, you know, all kinds of Tiva mugs in their hands with their signs are piling out, going to happily protest an issue that they're engaged on. That that really what they think the Republicans and the pro-life movement and conservatives are all about. They think it's about old white guys. And there are plenty of old white guys over here. That's great. But their party is the one running a bunch of old white guys for the presidency. Their party is a bunch of old white guys talking about what women should and shouldn't do with unborn babies, not their body parts, their babies. And in the videos we saw of Planned Parenthood talking about the sale of unborn, you know, their aborted body parts of babies, it was there were some old white men in that, too. So it's it's there's no there's no problem with being old or white or a man. But the characterization of the pro-life movement as being run by a patriarchy, it's just not true, is it? No, exactly. And, and one of these, uh, well, there are two other things that uh, we're seeing emerge out of this younger generation. The, the first is uh, a proper understanding of the patriarchal, to use their language, aspects of abortion, certainly since uh, the legalization of it from Roe v. Wade, that it has become a brutal instrument uh, in the hands of many men, uh, to force women uh, to end pregnancies, to have abortions because it's inconvenient for them. Uh, we see how many women are sort of bullied into abortions, which also raises the aspect that uh, some are really beginning to talk about in the pro-life movement, and that is that this is the great human rights and civil rights fight of our time that the unborn have civil and human rights uh, that have to be protected. And when we have the realization that if a woman has control over her body, which is what the, the, the pro-abortion movement has always said, surely a, a, a child, an unborn child, an unborn woman should also have that right over their body. So there's a, the dichotomy and the discrepancies and the hypocrisy of the abortion movement is being laid bare more and more in the face of very clear, cogent arguments and reframing arguments uh, that make sense, especially to young people in the area of, of rights and justice. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, obviously what you shared today has been very encouraging, and I understand the way that the process works. The pro-abortion people always want to move conversations that Americans are having uh, and movements that are happening in state legislatures where laws are being created, they always want to move those away from the people and their legislative bodies and shift them to the courts because they have control of the courts. But there's a phenomenon that's been going on that I've been watching with interest, and that is the it's a single-minded push by Leader McConnell, and he's working in cohort with the president to get a lot of these really 
activist courts flipped back to a constitutional uh, kind of orientation. And they've they've put in a record number of judges and they're not stopping. Do you think that's going to be helpful in the future going forward as these cases wind their way through the courts? I do. I think I think that has a twofold effect. Uh, the first is that we are seeing, as I was mentioning with the Ninth Circuit and, and other courts, down uh, the, the court system. Everyone is very focused on the Supreme Court, but these appointments uh, represent uh, a real seismic shift uh, on a lot of these courts in that uh, where, where you have an already fairly conservative group uh, or body uh, that is now strengthened, but we're also hearing conservative voices uh, on these other courts that have not had them for a long time. But this is also uh, going to have an important impact down the road, and that is that uh, at given political cycles, we don't know if President Trump's going to be reelected, but down the road there's likely to be an, another Republican president, win or lose, on the part of President Trump in 2020. And you are looking now at a pool of what will then be seasoned, experienced, talented uh, judges who know the system and who are then going to be uh, real possible picks, candidates for higher positions in the, in the courts, up to and including the Supreme Court. In much the same way that you need to have young legislators on the state level who become candidates for higher office, you need to have a deep bench and a deep pool. In that same way, too, a transformation of the judiciary is happening before our eyes. And, and I can guarantee you, as somebody who works in Washington, D.C. and covers politics every day, this is one of the most alarming aspects to this administration when you talk to Democratic lawmakers. <laughs> it's, I think it's the best. <laughs> Honestly, I just can't. I can't stress because I think it's it's one thing when when you win on the merits. So if you if you say, I don't like this this new law that's been that's been uh, you know passed, it's unconstitutional, and so you you know, sue and you take it to the the judiciary and the judiciary looks at the precedent and the constitution and says, that's unconstitutional. That's one thing. But what the Democrats are doing is getting injunctions to stop the people of America from being able to simply have their legislators pass laws. And I'm so glad it's alarming to Democrats. It should be, it should be a wake up (laughs) call for them. (laughs) Matthew Bunsen, national Catholic register. Thank you for coming on today. I hope to talk to you again soon. Great to be with you. God bless. All right. God bless. All right. When we get back, we'll take calls and we'll finish out the program today. I have so much more to get to. Um, 866-963-2037. Be right back. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. All across America, state legislatures have been debating born alive bills legislation that would protect newborn infants who survive a late-term abortion. In Wisconsin, Nancy Stencil, chair of the Democrat Party of Marathon County, opposes this law and said something that made me, well, angry. She said, it's selfish to have a baby with disabilities live just for the sake of living. That's a lie. God has a plan for each baby conceived and he loves them and doesn't want them to be killed by abortion. When people advocate abortion for the sake of compassion, call them out on it. There's nothing compassionate about intentionally killing a defenseless baby. We must boldly and with love stand up for those who cannot defend themselves, always. 
Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. I'm Will Addison, director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. Fellow Americans and all of our friends, join me nightly right here on Urban Family Talk, the C.L. Bryant Show, 7 p.m. Central, as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet, the greatest success story the world has ever known. That'll be America, 7 p.m. on Urban Family Talk. It's the candidates with Brett Baer. Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell announced on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I talk to kids who sit in their classroom afraid that they'll be the next victim of gun violence. And they see Washington doing nothing about it. Focused on gun control. Amy Walter, national editor of the Cook Political Report. During the Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, Eric Swalwell was a fixture on cable television. Sees that he can put his message whether it's about Russia or about guns, at least into the dialogue. And Britt Hume, Fox News senior political analyst. He's a top-rung collusion truther. So he's out there where some people might think the buses don't run on a number of issues. You know, and if he gets publicity and attention, um, I think he probably calculates that he's ahead. All right, this one will make it to Iowa. Nope. I wouldn't think so. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Brett Baer. You can download episodes of Stacey of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. No, seriously. Listen, we need a mayor who is going to be on the job 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I ask the question, has the crisis in affordable housing been addressed? No. Has income inequality been addressed? No. Equal pay for equal work? No. How about cyclists who unfortunately are dying on our streets as a result of crashes? Has that been addressed? No. Environmental issues, has that been addressed? No. So what is the legacy? What are you running on? Has school segregation been addressed? No. So these issues and more. Obviously, listen, he could run. He's the 23rd candidate. I understand that. Um, but the question is, why? Por qué? Like, what's up? So you but he's a friend. <laughs> wow. So that's the Attorney General of New York trashing Bill de Blasio, asking why he's running. Now, I don't know what country she lives in. She says the schools are segregated, um, but the Democrats control New York. So if the schools are segregated and the Democrats are in charge, I got to ask her the same question. Why? Porque? Why are you voting for Democrats? They've segregated your schools. That's not the law of the land. Uh Oh, yeah. When you get to dealing in too much common sense, you know what can happen. You know what can happen. I don't know where she is. She, I mean, obviously, she's physically located in New York. 
And okay, full disclosure. Yeah, she's talking about the big stories that kind of were roiling the news a couple of years ago. A bunch of parents got together with some school administrators and convinced them to basically eliminate the school districts as they were. And New Yorkers had carefully saved their money and, you know, climbed up the property ladder to have ownership or renting arrangements in school districts that were AAA rated. And what they did was that the school administrators were like, we're just going to bring in kids from the poor areas and we're going to put them in these schools and, then, and we're not going to consult with the parents. And the parents are like, no, that's not what we paid for. You ain't doing that to us. And it really got nasty. It was a lot of really well-to-do wine box drinking moms with their Manolo Blahniks and their special athleta leggings on getting raucous up in those meetings, yelling about how they'd paid for certain school districts and they weren't about to let poor kids come in and lower their test scores. Oh, it got ugly. And again, one more time for those in the back, we ain't talking about any Republicans here. We're talking about Democrats in heavily Democrat controlled, Democrat populated New York, boroughs of Manhattan, the the wealthiest boroughs, which again, in New York, you can have a Tony wealthy little area. And then right next to it, you can have an area that is, you know, seriously working class. And so the schools in that area are, they're not performing as well. And this is something that it's so unfortunate that we can't deal in the truth here. And it's not about race because black kids and Hispanic kids can can perform at, at the same level as any other kid when given the right background and resources. But if you have a bunch of, you know, working class households where they're single parents, because you can be working class and have geniuses up in your in your in at your kitchen table. There are kid, plenty of kids who come from working class backgrounds that score they're they're they outscore everybody else on the charts. And that's because their parents working class, they're still pouring into those kids, reading to them, teaching them math, destigmatizing the tougher subjects. Kids, it doesn't matter the, the socioeconomics, although the socioeconomics do tend to trend the poorer the family, the lower the educational outcome. But the way to combat that is to tell everybody what the secret is. The secret is you're reading to those kids. They're not watching TV during the week. And sports are not above athletics. I shouldn't say sports. Athletics are not above education. If you raise your kids in a household where they know that their sports are just a happy, uh, like a happy extra. They're a benefit, but that there is no, you're going to be in the NBA one day. Okay. You know what? If your kid is born and they they're on track to be six feet, nine inches tall, then yeah, you probably can, can bank on that, but they still need to know how to read and do math at grade level and be able to graduate from college. So when they're done playing ball, they can, you know, run a business, et cetera, et cetera. But outside of that, tiny, teeny little genetic anomaly of kids who are going to end up in the NFL and the the NBA and professional sports, your kids should know that all of the athletics are there to help them increase their physical stamina and for them to be physically fit and for them to have uh, activities in which they can engage their friends. And it, it, it can be a family activity, but it should never be the primary. Your child should never be out in the driveway shooting hoops and bouncing a ball for a longer period of time than they spent reading and studying and doing their homework. And it's more than just here are three worksheets my teacher gave me today and I'm going to do these three worksheets. No, it's have you read the entire chapter for each of those worksheets? Have you studied any anything that's referenced in those chapters? Have you checked that book out of the library? Have you looked it up on the internet? Have you went to see what, why is that book referenced in this chapter? It's also, 
you look over the homework and then you ask them, can you explain how you got to this answer? Show me, show me, do you have your, your work? Did you do the, the actual problem on a separate sheet of paper? Show me how you got here. It's a focus that you have, that you direct the kids to have that focus. So socioeconomics does not impact that. When we stop, you know, acting as if it, it has anything to do with, well, the teacher doesn't like my child. He probably don't like your child because you your child can't sit through just even one little lecture. Your child just is up and down, up and down. Your child won't shut up. You know why he doesn't like your child? Because when the teacher says, okay, everybody, it's time to pack up and move on to the next activity, your child is giving up the lip, giving some back talk. It's not that the teacher doesn't like your child because they're permanently tanned. It's because their mouth is permanently wide open with sarcastic comments coming out. Deal with the culture. Deal with that home culture. As whatever is going on at your house, and, and this, is, this is the sad truth, y'all. Whatever's going on at your house with your kid is going on at school with your kid. If your kid is disrespectful at home, they're disrespectful at school. If your kid has an attitude at home, they have an attitude at school. If your kid refuses to do their homework or if you every time you leave the room, they're got the TV on behind your back, they're doing something similar to that in school. So if you raise those kids up to know, come on, (laughs) when I get that phone call from your teacher, I'm not going to go in there and put my finger in their face and say, why are you talking about my kid? I'm going to go in there and be like, so what issue do we need to address with my child? What is going on? So not that you're against your child and not that any teacher can get away with doing anything. But it only takes one time for you to have the teacher or the principal say your child has an in-school suspension or your child is doing so-and-so or I'd like to have a parent-teacher conference with you and you show up in that building and you look that teacher in the face and say, I'm your partner. This is a three-legged stool. It's you as the teacher, the educational process, the child, and it's us, the parents. And we're partners and we're going to work through this. Our child is here to get an education. And we respect your leadership, but know this, we're involved. We're plugged in. If you're teaching my child properly and doing everything according to what the curriculum is, has been laid out before us, we're all going to be totally on the same page. When teachers know that about you, that trust level goes through the roof and their expectation for your child will go through the roof too. They'll be looking for ways to stimulate your child because they want to have something to share with you at that parent-teacher conference. And this is pretty universal. Unless your kid has a bad teacher, and we've been through that before. So it's, you know, every teacher is not perfect, but our our experience has largely been that most of the teachers are good. Some, you know, there's a sliver of them that are kind of mediocre, and then there's a few bad ones. But for the most part, most of them, they're in the teaching profession because they enjoy teaching and interacting with kids. And if that teacher knows that you're at home and you're reinforcing what they're saying in the classroom, you're asking about their homework, you, you're going to show up for a, you know, a couple of field trips a year. If she needs something in the classroom, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I mean, on the supply list, you asked us to send in a box of tissue. We sent in three just in case some other families can't, you know, can't do the tissue. There you go. You know, just, it's, it's not about throwing down huge sums of money or quitting your job and going and being her assistant. It's about showing that effort. Hey, we're partnering with you because I want this kid to have an education. Yes, I'm going to be sitting at graduation crying and, and thinking about the, the smaller years when they were five and they had the little munchkin voice and their cheeks were still fat. Yes, I'm going to be thinking, I just don't want them to go away to college. But the point is that they're going to be ready to go to college or the military or to training or whatever they're going to go do. And the minute you let the teacher know that, the minute you let the principal know that you're one of those families, 
that your kid is not one of those kids, that's when the educational thing, it starts to change for you. It changes for your child. The teacher expects better from them. Children respond to that. But if your child is going to be the one who's always mouthing off, always running in late, always with their, they don't have their homework. They've got a fresh excuse on their lips every time they're asked a question. They're smart alecky and they're there to entertain the rest of the kids in the class. Then of course the teacher's not going to like your child. Who cares what kind of tan they've got? They could be purple spotted. They are a Billy bad butt and they are a problem in the classroom. They're distracting and slowing down the momentum of the class. They're preventing the proper teaching of the curriculum and the items that need to be taught. They are a problem. So if you have one of those problem children on your knees, ask God, first of all, ask for forgiveness. Get that out of the way. Repent, turn away from that sin. Cut that TV off. If you have to cut off every avenue, if you have to cut your Wi-Fi off, cut it off. Get the house in proper working order and then tell your child, we've done you wrong. I apologize. We have actually allowed you to operate as an adult in this household. And now we are going to do it God's way. You are going to go into that classroom and you're going to behave and I'm going to get with your teacher and we're going to make sure that we are all on the same page and that you're getting an education because if you don't get an education, you're going to have a straight pipeline to prison and I'm going to be held responsible for that. So will you. I don't want God having that conversation with me. I'm not going to let him down on this job that he's given me to raise you upright. Kids respond to that. They want your attention. They want your approval. They want your love. But if they're not going to get it, they're going to have the little mouth going. They're going to have the little attitude going. They're going to be the class clown and entertain everybody else. And (laughs) my parents used to always tell me the class clown entertains the class, the class that's being entertained. Those kids are learning and doing their homework. And when it comes time to move on to the next grade, they're prepared. And the class clown is sitting up. They made a lot of jokes and got a lot of laughs, but they don't know anything. So, you know. (laughs) Um, I hope this isn't too real or too harsh, but it's, it needs to be said. It's not about teachers not liking your child because your child is black or Hispanic or white or what have you. It's your child's attitude in the classroom. You know, nobody likes a problem child. This, this is not just, <laughs> not just an education. This is those same people at work. I mean, have you not ever worked with somebody like that? Every time you turn around, you're like, oh, gee. Whoa, you know, and your boss is like that too. They're like, whoa, like you, no, you don't want that. Be in partnership with those teachers. And then if you're living in a neighborhood where the schooling isn't, you know, you're not going to get that, that option, that school environment that you're looking for, you know, then you have to go to those other options where you're like, you know, um, you're homeschooling, you're doing a co-op. You are partnering with another group of families if there's no co-op. It's so interesting because all of the ones that we've been involved with or that we've known families from, when you talk to them, they'll say, oh, it's just like this one or two parents runs the whole thing. And when you talk to those one or two parents, they're like, oh, well, you know, we had to take our kid out of this school district. It's, it's usually that they kind of just answer a call. And then other parents come in and supplement. So I'm saying all of this to say that there's a way to get it done, but let's all own our part of it. And it's hard because looking at ourselves and saying, oh, this is my fault, especially with the parenting, keeps you up at night, you're crying, you're having all the issues. 
but God is able to come in at any point. And, and I'll leave you with this. This, this is encouraging. Back when I was, this is before I was on school board, actually. Um, I used to work on diversity committee. It was a volunteer thing. I didn't really work there. I volunteered there. And a bunch of us parents, and we would get these reports from the principal because she was this data analysis, like she was a monster at data analysis. And she could do these amazing, um, like she'd take information and she would put it into a form where we could kind of look at, this is what happened year over year when they did this, when they did that, et cetera, et cetera, to try to figure out how to improve kids' test scores through learning. And she highlighted for us a school was able to get um, a year and a half worth of learning. So a school year is 10 months or 188 contact days here in the state of Missouri. Your state may be 190 or 176, whatever. They were able to get the equivalent of a year and a half worth of educational learning into kids. But the first thing they had to do was they had to get the parents to come in for a parent-teacher conference. And some of the teachers actually traveled to these kids' homes and rang the doorbell at dinner time and came in with a folder with their kids working it and got the parents on board by basically chasing them down and saying, you haven't been able to come in. I know you work two jobs, whatever. I need to talk to you about your kid. And once they got the parents on board, the kids came on board automatically because your kid is going to follow your lead. And then with the parents and teachers and the kid on board, they could take kids who were below grade level and get them up a whole year and a half in one school year. And they replicated these results in multiple different school districts with multiple different like socioeconomics. So anything is possible with your kid's education. If you just say to yourself, we're doing this thing right from now on, let's get it. Pray over it. God will supercharge your results. All right, that's the show for today. God bless you from the heartland. Stacey Washington, StaceyOnTheRight.com.